Revelation chapter 3, starting with verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, I just want to pray for your guidance. I want to pray for your spirit to um, take my words, take my study, take my preaching, uh, and to use it and magnify it for your own glory. Uh, Show us what you have uh, here for us to learn so that we can be faithful and that we can learn to love you and your son more, that we can become more dependent upon your spirit. Uh, Guide us as we study your word. Amen. All right, so I want to begin this sermon on Revelation 3 at what may seem at first as kind of an odd spot. I want to talk about the doctrine of the Bible. In other words, what do Christians believe about Scripture? And I'll explain why in a second, but hang with me. So um, Christianity, especially Protestant Christianity, has a lot of diverse beliefs. We don't always agree on every single nuance on what the Bible says, but there are some fundamentals that we hold true that unite us. The most important being the gospel, being about Jesus, Um, but one of the other fundamentals is our view of the scripture. Uh, And it's important because our view of the scripture uh, is what gives us all our other views. We know God because he gave us his word. And so what we believe about the Bible is fundamentally important to who we are as Christians. And so some of the beliefs we believe about the Bible is that, one, this is God's word. It was written by human beings in their own time and language and cultures, and you even see their personalities show up, but these are the very words of God. In fact, Jesus says that not even a jot or a tittle is erased from the scripture, that every single point, and those are kind of the weird Um, accent marks that other languages have that English doesn't, even those are inspired and directly part of God's word, every single word, right? And that is fundamental to what we believe as Christians. Even though God used human beings and their culture and their language and their personalities, these are God's specific words. That's important. That's why we can go to a specific word in the Bible and, and determine from that what God is saying, okay? Now, along with that comes this belief that the Bible is true. Now, this is a hugely disputed point. A lot of uh, skeptics of Christianity will constantly attack the Bible and say that it's constantly teaching things that are not true, and it's constantly uh, contradicting itself. Here's the thing. I I could go in a whole defense of this, um, but one of the things I did in college when I sat down was like, why do I believe Christianity? Is this something I was just given, or is this something fundamentally true I believe? I started looking up the biggest objections to Christianity, and that's one of the first things I went to, these so-called contradictions and errors in the Bible. And what you'll find is (laughs) 
I had better questions about the scripture than the skeptics. Uh, it was honestly a little disappointing. They kept going to these contradictions, and what they were, were they completely misread the context of the scripture. Um, so one of, one of the things I encourage you to do, especially if you're a new Christian, or if you've been Christian for a while and never done it, actually study, is the scripture reliable? Don't just take other people's opinions for it. Look, does the Bible hold up under scrutiny? And I would argue that it absolutely, overwhelmingly does. The Bi- what the Bible said is true. And so if this is God's word, and it is true, what comes with that is the Bible is also authoritative for us. And what that means is, as Christians, if the Bible says it, we must believe it. If the Bible commands it, we must obey it. All right? And this is where a lot of pushback against Christianity does, because the Bible doesn't always tell us to do things that we want to do. (laughs) But we don't have the choice. If we are followers of Jesus, what we say is that God knows better than us, and even if we can't see why he's saying it, it is true, it is good, and we must obey it, okay? Uh, And with that is this belief, every word is authoritative and true, but it's also sufficient. Whatever we need in order to live the Christian life, to know about God and his forgiveness and his salvation, is in this. The Bible is not incomplete, all right? And it's that last point I want to move into the book of Sardis. Because as we look at this section on the book of Sardis, we look and we say, okay, God is saying they appear alive, but they're in fact dead. And as I'm studying this, my thought is, okay, but what specifically is going on? It'd be so much easier if I had the specifics in the story, right? Then I could say, this is what they were doing. This is how we should not be like the church of Sardis. But it doesn't give that. And yet what we believe is the Bible is sufficient. So even though it doesn't give specific examples, it gives us enough to learn and grow and obey from it. And this, as I begin to study, the reason why Um, And this is just my opinion, by the way, not the scripture. But I think the reason why Jesus doesn't give us specifics is because a dead church comes across with many different symptoms. At the heart, it is dead, but that looks differently depending on the culture and the personality of that church. And so inevitably, what you have when people preach on this, they say, oh, what dead church means is this, or what dead church means is this, and it happens to line up perfectly with what they as a church are constantly pushing for, right? Uh, Or, and this is even worse, I as a pastor am tempted, what I want to see in you guys as a church, whether I'm frustrated that I don't see you evangelizing enough or praying enough, turns out, hey, look, the church in Sardis, a dead church means those who aren't sharing the gospel, wow, that's convenient, right? (laughs) Or a dead church means those who are not praying, that's convenient, But I am not the Bible. I do not have authority to do that. I must teach what God says, no more and no less. So when we come to the scripture, I want to show you through scripture what God is trying to say to us. And as much as possible, I don't want to get on my own um, high horses and soapboxes. I want to teach the word of God. And now the thing with all of those is that yes, a lack of prayer, a lack of witness, a lack of obedience and service and love to their neighbors, all those things can be a sign of deadness. But the problem is they are surface issues. At the heart is something deeper. And if you don't fix the heart problem, you may get a church that patches up any one of the symptoms, but on the inside, they are still dead. 
So I want to avoid that as we dive into Scripture. So let's see what it has to say. The first thing in this letter to the church of Sardis, he says is this, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write. Now remember uh, what Joe told us as we began the study when Jesus is saying these are the seven angels to the seven churches. He is not talking about what we usually think about angels, right? Big wing guys with swords maybe. Um, no, what he's talking about here is more the idea of messenger. In other words, the elder or the pastor or the shepherd of that church. So to that pastor, that elder of the church in Sardis, I write this. The words who him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, every letter that he begins to the church, he is, begins it with a description that he already gave in this first chapter. So some, he says, I am the first in life. To others, he gives the description that John gave of him. Here, though, he specifically chooses, I'm the one with the seven spirits of God and with the seven churches. Now, if you are all familiar with Christianity and the Trinity, this might be a confusing statement to you. The seven spirits of God. Wait a second, I thought there was one spirit of God, right? The Holy Spirit, person of the Trinity. Now, sometimes this gets lost because as you continue Revelation, it says a bunch of other weird stuff that we're like, what does that say? So we forget that right here, this is kind of a weird statement. What you have to understand about the Bible and the number seven is the number seven means uh, fullness, completeness. So when it's saying the seven spirits of God, another way of saying that could be the sevenfold spirit of God. In other words, the complete Holy Spirit. So Jesus is claiming here to have the complete and full Holy Spirit. And not only that, he's saying he has the seven angels, right? In other words, he has the leaders of the churches, the true leaders and the complete leaders of all the churches. What he's saying here is that the church is mine. I have the church, the true church. I have the spirit of the church who um, convicts the world of sin and brings people into the church, who sanctifies the believers into the church to look more like Jesus, who empowers them with gifts to fulfill the ministry of the church, who seals the believers in the church until Jesus returns again. So what Jesus is saying in this moment is the spirit of the church and the church itself, it is is mine. And so then he talks to the church of Sardis, the, the church, the full church, the whole church is mine, and I know you have a reputation for being alive, but you are actually dead. I know that because the whole church is mine. Even though other people can't see it, even though you have a reputation for being faithful and being alive, I, the owner of the church, know differently. So he's giving his authority, and then he's moving on to this church. But what is that death? What does he mean by you appear alive, but you're actually dead? Now here, what we have to understand about Christianity is from the beginning to the end, the Bible is constantly talking about life and death. And it doesn't just mean actual physical life and death. It's something deeper and more true than that. Because from the very first page of the Bible, what God says is that human beings, he breathed, in other words, breath and spirit are the same in the Old Testament. He gave his spirit to humanity to give them life. So what it means to be living is to be given the spirit of God who holds your life who gives you life, who sustains your life. But then what happened? 
humanity rebelled against God and separated their relationship from God. And even though they didn't physically die on that exact moment, they died in a deeper way because they separated themselves from the very source of life. And so the Bible is all about how God, who is life, who is the source of life, bringing life back to a dead humanity. And what is the way he does that? We have the reminder of it here with communion. See, he does it in a very paradoxical way. He knows that humanity can never restore the relationship with God. They are completely unable to do so. So instead, he does what we cannot. He becomes a human for our sake. He lives the perfect life that we could never live. He dies and takes the punishment for sin in our place. And then he comes back to life so that those who follow him can be raised back to life with him. So all throughout the New Testament is this idea that believers in Jesus have died to their old life and now they're raised up into this new life with Jesus, except it's no longer their life to live. They are living the life of Jesus. So every act we do as Christians is Jesus acting through us to the world. The reason why it's so important to love our neighbors is because we are showing them the love that Jesus has for them because we are living his life now. We're not living our own life. So when he says that this church is dead, he means two things. One, he's talking church is not individual, so there are probably many in that church who fully believe that they are Christians, but they're not. They're going through the motions, but they do not have the Spirit of God in them. They're not living their lives for Jesus now, which is a scary thought. We have that a lot today. We have people who Christianity is a part of their lives. They come to church. They do the church things. They might pray and read their Bible. But what you have to understand about Christianity is there are no half measures in following Jesus. Okay? We're dead to our old life. The life we now live, we don't live for ourselves. We live for Jesus. That means that Jesus is not a part of our lives. He is all of it. I remember in college this really stuck home for me. I had this uh, mentor in my um, field of exercise science, and he um, went to church. He was a great man in the community and in the church. By all appearance, he seemed to love God. He did these huge charities for the church to combat sex trafficking. He was, he was an awesome guy in all uh, respects that I could see, um, but I remember him telling me one day, just kind of as a bit of life advice, he's like, you know, you want to have moderation in all things, including in your religion. Now, I kind of thought about that for a while, and even though that statement is true for most things in our life, we should have moderation in all things. Fundamentally, to have moderation in a relationship with Jesus is not what the Bible talks about. There is no halfway with Jesus. We are either living our whole lives for Jesus or we're not living our lives for Jesus at all. There is no moderation when it comes to Christianity. And this shows up in everything. I know it's easy to think about in our religious life with the usual things like prayer and Bible study and witness and everything else. But Jesus came and died so that we might live completely and totally for him. It is this amazing gift. And that means every area. I remember for me, it really hit home in wrestling. I mean, wrestling from third grade till college was one of the biggest aspects in my life. Um, 
But the way I wrestled changed when I had another mentor say, when you wrestle, when you, when you are going in that point of practice where you want to give in and you want to give up, remember that wrestling, it doesn't matter whether you win or lose or anything else that it brings. This is an act of worship to God. That changed the way I wrestled from that moment on. The way I practiced, the way I pushed in a match. When I was wrestling, I felt the very presence of God who gave me this, this gift to live and move and breathe in him. And he let me exercise that as I wrestled. And so the act of wrestling became worship. And it came home later in school too. As I was studying these science classes about the human body, I just marveled at the creation that God had given. And these classes that are otherwise good in themselves became actual acts of worship. You see, Jesus didn't come and die to have part of our life. He came to have all of it and to transform even those parts that we don't often connect with religion and with Jesus. And to not have that is to be dead. To be alive means every area of your life is transformed. Now, we don't always live that out perfectly. Not every match I thought that. <laughs> not every science class I thought that. Sometimes late up at night writing my 20-page paper, I definitely wasn't thinking about worshiping Jesus, right? But more and more as you walk with Jesus, he begins to transform every single area of your life. And so this is what he's calling for them here. He says, I know you appear to be alive. By all surface things, your culture sees you and go, oh, these are followers of Jesus, but you're dead. Who knows what that meant? Maybe they were very active and loving in their community. Maybe they were men uh, and women who really took seriously worship and prayer and Bible study. The fact was, they began to slip. They were no longer doing it for Jesus. And that's easy for us to, if we're honest about it, if we've been a Christian longer than one month, I think we've tasted this. We all come into Christianity and we're so overwhelmed at this amazing mercy of God that he would forgive us. We're so impressed with the depth of our sin that the fact that God could forgive us is just amazing and marvelous. But as we walk the Christian life, we think about that less and less. And now everything we do as Christians is no longer about this incredible gratitude we have in Jesus, but it's just about being good to be good, doing the right thing to do the right thing. But the Bible is not do about doing the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing. It's about doing the right thing because of our incredible gratitude at the overwhelming and surprising mercy of Jesus. It says that. It says, we love, why? Because we were first loved. And so, as we look at it here, what does the Bible say to that church that is dead, even though they look alive? He says, wake up! Now, if you're just rejoining us after a brief nap, that was not directed at you personally. <laughs> but he says, wake up! And how do we, what is the first thing he says to wake up? He says, remember. Look here, it says, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! And strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, then, what you have received and heard. And what the Bible talks about in the past when it's talking about receiving and hearing is this gift of the gospel given to each of us. 
That's why it's not just talking about the dead who are not yet Christians in the church, but actual Christians. He's saying, remember, remember when you were first Christians. Remember when you first received the gospel. That's why we do communion. It's because it's so easy to forget the incredible joy of our salvation. We just slip into routine. But he's saying, remember, keep this on your mind. I don't want you acting and doing the right thing for the right thing's sake. I want you to be empowered by my mercy. I want you to love because you know that you are loved. I want you to forgive because you are forgiven. Christianity is not about saving yourself. It's not about working up enthusiasm to do the right thing. It's not about this begrudging discipline, although it takes discipline sometimes. It's about this incredible gratitude we have for a Savior who has forgiven us for sins that, quite honestly, we would have never been able to make right on our own. And so he's saying, wake up and remember but not just remember, it says remember what you received and heard, and then he says keep it. Now something fundamental about Christianity um, that we've kind of forgotten in the modern age is that truly knowing something is not just this mental exercise, right? Uh, now, as we, we kind of took on the scientific method, our, our what we did in philosophy and other things was we tried to boil things down to the basic um, truth. We tried to boil things down to make it simplistic. And that helps with science, it doesn't help with Christianity. Because what we ended up doing is we, we talked about knowing something that we only knew mentally. When the scripture talks about knowing, it is something much more deep and fundamentally true. It is knowing in your bones or in your guts. And you can't know that by simply reading the Bible and having it interpreted. You actually have to live it out. Until you have lived the Bible, you do not know the Bible. And, and it's not, I can stand up here and preach it all day, but honestly, you have to experience. You have to experience this, this truth that even in hard and painful circumstances, you can find comfort and joy because God is with you. On the surface, that seems counterintuitive, but when you live it, then you know that it is true. The same thing with forgiveness. It is so counterintuitive to forgive our enemies, but when we do it, we experience the grace of God because we know that as much as this person may be an enemy of me, I was so much worse to my God. And we are reminded of his grace and we experience the truth of it. We know the truth of it beyond just a mental exercise. So what the Bible is saying here is remember and keep it. In other words, live out the truth that you have been given in the scripture and in the gospel. Don't just keep it in your head. But then it goes on and it says, keep it and repent. You know, the thing I'm amazed about this section is that you see Jesus in the Gospels, and he is most hard on the hypocrites in Scripture, those who say one thing and do another. And yet, what do we have here? Those who, by all appearances, are alive, but they're actually dead. And yet, what is Jesus' tone to them in this moment? It is one of kindness. He is offering this opportunity to truly repent, to truly experience what they could have all along, to truly experience life. 
You know, that's a hard thing for some people who are not yet Christians to understand is why we live the way we do. They say you're limiting yourself. You're not experiencing all the joys that come with living and what we try to say to them, but what they can't understand until the Spirit has actually proved it to them is that everything they're doing is not freedom. Everything they're doing is not living. In fact, God offers you to submit yourself to him so that you can actually truly experience freedom and life. None of those other things that we think will give us joy and happiness ever end up doing that. They're just empty and they just trap us. What God is saying is, come to me, obey me, and you will find true freedom and true joy and true life. For the first time, you will be fully alive. And that is what Jesus is offering to the church in Sardis. But then he goes on. He says, this, uh, he says two things um, that I want us to hear after this. He's saying, if you do not wake up, this is what I'm going to do. And it's interesting because he uses the language that he often uses for a second coming. He says, you don't know the hour in which I'm going to come. But this is not talking about the second coming. What Jesus is saying here is if you as a church don't wake up, I'm going to come. You won't know when, but I'm going to come, and that is going to be the end of your church. Uh, you know, one of the things that a lot of people struggle with today in our culture is this view of the church. They go, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. And I understand that, but what you've got to understand is Jesus doesn't give that option. Like, you're talking about his bride. He doesn't just let you say, oh, I like you, but I hate your wife. Like, it doesn't work like that. Um, but that still leaves the fact that a lot of times Christians in the church, sometimes we get so frustrated that they seem dead, that they are not living like they should be. And this brings hope to us because what Jesus is saying here is that he will purify his church. It's not always when we want or how we expect it, but he will purify his church. And we know that through history. There have been some dark times in the history of Christianity. But guess what? Jesus has always purified his church. He has always moved it forward. The sin and the pain and the problems that have been caused, he does not ignore it. He brings about the purity and the wholeness and the holiness of his people. And he will do that. And one, that is a warning for us, because uh, a lot of times at the same time we're casting stones at our brothers and sisters, we're forgetting to look and say, yeah, but I'm just as bad at times. So it, it can be a warning, but it is also an encouragement. Like, if you look around you, and, you, and if you're pessimistic about the history of the church, Jesus is saying here, have hope, this is my church, and I will perfect it. But it's more than that. For those who are in the midst of a dead church, it's so hard to be faithful in the midst of a dead church. It's like you're fighting against a steep current. When you're saying, when you're talking about loving Jesus and obeying the Bible and you're just taking it for granted and those around you are looking at you like you're crazy. As if the basics of Christianity, relying on the spirit of living your life wholly and completely for Jesus are fanatical. That's hard it is hard to stay faithful in this environment, but Jesus promises that if you stay faithful, there is a reward. He says right here, for those who have conquered, I will give them a white 
robe, and that before their father, my father, I will acknowledge them. He's reminding us that even though Christianity can bring good stuff for us now, the hope of Christianity is not now. Hope of Christianity is in the eternity to come when we are fully restored before the Father and we get to that point and Jesus said, this one is mine. That is the hope we live for. That is why you can look at the church in India right now and even though it may cost them their jobs, it may cost them their family, it may cost them prison time or even worse as the time goes on, they live for Jesus because their hope is in this moment that Jesus will return and he will make all things right. That's why when I preach to you from this text, I know the environment that I'm teaching to. I know that less and less is it acceptable to be a faithful Christian. And even if you claim to be a Christian, it's less and less acceptable to be fully alive for Jesus where he consumes all of you Christianity taught now is this lie of moderation in all things, including Jesus. But what I can say for you is if you fight that current, if you rely on the Holy Spirit and you give yourself completely and totally to Jesus, there is a reward and it is worth it. And that is the promise we have in Jesus' letter to the church of Sardis. So I want to close out time as I want to give us a little space for some self-examination. You know, as I was preparing this, um, I was reminded just how easy it is to stop remembering the joy of our salvation. I mean, this is the number one thing they teach in seminary. The big danger of being a pastor is to forget that joy, to get caught up in the work and the busyness of things and drift and not be fully relying on the Spirit to give you strength, Right? And yet, even though we were warned that every single day, I read this text and I go, oh man, that's becoming me. It is so easy to forget the joy of our salvation if we're not constantly reminding ourselves and constantly reminding our brothers and sisters around us to look at the cross, to look at Jesus, to look at the gospel. So what I want to do is spend some time examining yourself. Have you forgotten the joy of your salvation? If so, Confess that to God and ask him to bring it back. Ask him to help you share that joy to those around you who are struggling. The second thing I want you to ask, if you've never really experienced that joy of salvation, are you actually alive in Christ? Are you just have the image of being alive and yet never actually received the Spirit? Because here's the thing, you can, Right? It is not something we can earn, but it is something that we can be freely given. So all you have to do is confess your sins before God, repent of them, and, and give yourself wholly and completely to Jesus. It is nothing we do or earn. He is ready and waiting to freely give us of this life, to be truly alive in God. So a little bit of, of quiet time of reflection. I'll close us in prayer.
Father, um, thank you so much for the mercy and grace you've shown to us that even though we have consistently chosen death, you are always ready and willing to offer life. So I pray that we take your word seriously, that we turn back to a remembrance of your gospel, and that if we have any have not received the gospel, that they today repent and receive the grace and hope that you are ready and willing to offer. Amen.